Hello and welcome to my brand new podcast, Voice of Change. In this podcast, we break down the big issues in climate and sustainability. The majority of Australians believe in climate change and want to take action. However, it is a wicked problem that is overly complicated, with the way forward not always clear. This podcast aims to empower through education and give voice to those who can lead the way. In an era of distrust, scepticism and fake news, we bring you the experts and present you information, facts and some interesting ideas. This is Voice of Change and I am your host, Sophie Taylor-Price. From Kevin07 through to getting there in a canter, Australia's dialogue on climate action and policy has had a relatively incoherent narrative and policy agenda. And there is a clear disconnect between public sentiment and voter behaviour. The Oxford Dictionary has named climate crisis as its 2019 word of the year. And climate action is clearly on Australia's mind, and increasingly so. In the ABC's recent Australia Talk survey, climate change was the leading worry of all respondents, with 72% concerned it would affect their lives. The 2019 Lowy Institute poll found that 64% of Australian adults see climate change as a critical threat, an increase of 18 points since 2014. Yet, Australia is viewed by many to have no effective mechanism to take action on climate. And the results of our May 2019 election provided no clear mandate for a different approach. As we're all aware, Australia was expecting a change in government and with it, a change in climate policy. The outcomes were a surprise to many and was seen as a blow to the climate action agenda. So that they could understand why the outcomes went against all forecasts, even the bookies got it wrong, Labor leadership commissioned a review of Labor's loss. This review was chaired by Craig Emerson and Jay Wetherill. While the review covered a broad range of topics and issues, for me, there was one question. What did we learn about how we can better communicate and engage people on climate change so we can develop effective policy responses? While the review's purpose was to understand and address the surprise loss, I want to make clear that I believe that climate action is a bipartisan issue and that the objectives of today's conversation is not to advocate for a particular political party, but rather build an understanding of how we as a nation move forward. Given my political heritage, one would expect this to be a Labor-bent event. However, this is a genuine inquiry into what we need to do differently to engage with others and sell and communicate our climate policy. I know that I have promised you science and facts on this show, but I also promise insights and interesting ideas. So today, there is a big dash of politics thrown into the mix because these are inherently political questions. I genuinely want to know how to shift the conversation away from its current state, such that a mandate for action is on the agenda regardless of political affiliation, rather than dependent on it. To help us understand what can be learnt from the election outcomes, we go straight to the horse's mouth. Today we have on the show Craig Emerson, one of the leaders of the review. Craig is an economist and a former Labor MP. He was also an economic and environmental advisor to my grandfather, Bob Hawke, back in the 80s. Craig, hello and welcome, and thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's a pleasure, Sophie. 
Cool, we might get straight into it. Uh, to get started, can you please explain to us the objectives of the review, uh, why you and Jay were selected to lead it, and just what was involved in the process? I don't know why Jay and I were selected <laughs> to lead it, uh, but the purpose of it was to use the experience uh, not to rake over the past, but to inform the Labor Party about future directions. Uh, so it wasn't designed to run around pointing fingers at people, but at the same time it wasn't designed as a whitewash uh, so that um, to allow anyone to say, oh, we was robbed, you know. And you do see a lot of post-election commentary from progressive people saying, oh, we was robbed because it was Clive Palmer or, or it was because of um, one of the media outlets or whatever, as if there won't be a Clive Palmer or someone like him at the next election, uh, or, or as if the media will be all 100% biased in favour of Labor. Neither of those is going to happen. So we wanted to look at the past to inform the future, to give Labor a better chance of winning the next election. The report asked the question, did Labor focus too much on climate change? Uh, and, and I saw that question in the report and I read the response, but to me, I didn't really see a clear answer. Uh, in simple terms, did it? The, the answer is there isn't a clear answer because quite a number of voters swung to Labor um, but they were higher income voters and our educated guess is that was because of climate change. Uh, but no seats changed in Labor's favour because of that, none. Uh, so they were very safe Victorian seats in particular, but also Sydney seats, um, seats that the coalition had held by 60% and they, then they went to 57%. Well, you know, that doesn't change any composition in the House of Representatives or indeed in the Senate. Um, so, but there were people, uh, lower income working people, who were quite fearful of the Labor's overall package because it was very complicated, not just climate change, tax and spending policies and a huge number of spending initiatives that frightened people because they thought it might crash the economy and cost their jobs. And the coalition did a good job of reinforcing that fear. And that's a great segue into my next question. So the report outlines that mining communities viewed the language of climate change as a threat to their jobs and that the party was devastated in coal mining communities of regional Queensland and the Hunter Valley. Given where we are at today, how do we change the conversation and decouple the climate debate from political alliances in those regions? Well, it's just not at all easy. Uh, and one small part in the overall scheme is that everyone in a coal mining community felt threatened by Labor. Um, well, when I say everyone, you know, this was the overall situation. Even in coal mining communities that produced coking coal, which is used to make steel. Now, not even the staunchest advocate of action on climate change is saying we can't have steel in the future. But they felt their jobs because coal is coal. It's actually not exactly true that coal is coal. Um, so Labor unnecessarily alienated people for whom there was to be no change. Um, however, in other parts of Eastern Australia, where it is thermal coal that's being extracted, 
The message they got, which actually more came through the Greens Party, but by association Labor, was that they they were doing dirty jobs and how dare they do dirty jobs and they should give up their job to save the planet. And they Mm. said, no, no, thank you. I'm voting Mm. coalition. That's really interesting. So I guess from your perspective, what are the key takeaways in terms of changing how we communicate with these people on climate action? Well, it's these people in a broader community as well because there were plenty of people who were fearful of Labor's offering who weren't in coal mining communities. Mm. And uh, what we say in the report, and I profoundly believe, is that in talking about climate change in the future, we should be talking about it not so much being a threat to people's jobs, but the transition to renewables being an opportunity for them. Um, We didn't talk about the cost of not doing anything on climate change, and we see those costs in bushfires and and, uh, all around us, really, and all the scientific evidence, all the monitoring that's going on around the world. Um, And I think it's important to talk about the cost of doing nothing, the cost of inaction, but also the benefits, because Australia, as set out by in a new book by Professor Ross Garneau, who also worked for your grandfather and was my PhD thesis supervisor, he points out that Australia has abundant um, sources of renewable energy. You know, wind ain't wind and sun ain't sun. I mean, you, you get better resources of uh, solar energy in some parts of the world than others. You get better wind in some parts of the world than others. And we've got good resources of wind and solar. We're also doing a lot of research on hydrogen and um, hydrogen's zero emissions, you know, when it's done out of... um, not done out of brown coal, it's zero emissions. And this could be a superpower future for Australia where we're actually using what effectively is renewables to um, convert iron ore into early stage um, steel processing in this country. So there's a lot of potential jobs here. And so what do we need to have in place to capitalise on that opportunity? Well, Labor did actually take a hydrogen strategy to the last election, but it was just lost in all of the noise Mm. of all of the other policies, way over 200 other policies. Well, who could understand or even know that? You know, a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of people would have had any awareness of that at all. So I think that, to summarise, the story of climate change and action of climate change needs to be less threatening and offer jobs, but also importantly in the electricity generating sector, there's not going to be another coal-fired power station built in Australia, Mm. you know, and we should be equating the shift to renewables plus pumped hydro, which is another form of renewable energy, as leading to lower electricity prices. So the other problem is, as soon as Labor talks about climate change, its political opponent says, so Labor's for higher electricity prices. Mm. The truth is, if we do nothing Mm. and continue the way we are, which is this shambolic kind of, you know, hodgepodge of policies and climate change denial, electricity prices will go up. So Labor has an opportunity to go to the next election saying, we have a strategy to lower electricity prices, increase renewables and create jobs in regional Australia. That's the formula. What I also heard from speaking to you just now and reading the report is that 
people also felt a little bit insulted that their their jobs and their livelihoods and their communities weren't respected. Is there a change there in terms of how we 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 talk to people who are in those? Well, industries? yes, but people can see through political rhetoric too. You know? <laughs> they can. So so you could say, oh, look, we think you're doing a marvelous job. We just think your job should be finished. Well, they go, oh, thanks for the lovely words. Now rack off. Um, so. It's got to be, there's got to be substance behind it. And I don't think anyone in the Labor Party said to um, people in mining communities, we think your jobs are unworthy and you're doing dirty jobs. No one did. But mm. that's the message they received. And, and frankly, when it's sort of where Labor is seen to be in some sort of sense in cahoots with the Greens and the Greens do send these messages, Labor gets equated with that. And uh, it's a very poisonous situation. So sure, the rhetoric needs to change, but the substance behind the rhetoric is even more important. Yes. Um, So moving on, ultimately what we found was there was a disconnect between public concern on climate and voter behaviour. In a recent article you wrote, uh, you said that tribalism is killing civil discourse. Um, simply, what did you mean by that and how do we counteract this effect? Well, it's very prevalent on social media in particular, but increasingly even on mainstream media, where you can't have a discussion about something without immediately being claimed, you know, identified or have an allegation levelled at you, oh, you don't believe in climate change. So, for example, if I say I don't think that um, we can go to 100% renewables in the next two years, you get people saying, see, he's a climate change denier. And I actually, through all the years working with uh, Bob Hawke, what we tried to do was achieve results rather than simply make speeches and and so on. And I, I think that achieving results, whether it be on Antarctica or Tasmania forests or Kakadu or the Queensland rainforests, is far more important than standing up in the Senate or standing up you know, in front of a microphone and just pointing figures and say, well, these people aren't absolutely pure, therefore we shall condemn them as climate change deniers. It's completely unproductive. Craig, you've been in this game for a long time now. Um, You look way too young for it, (laughs) but you were an environmental advisor to my grandfather in the, the late 80s. And I know it was a completely different era and the game has changed significantly. But Pop was celebrated for his consensus building, uh, particularly on environmental issues. So what can we learn from then that we can apply today? Yeah, well, that's a great question because, and it's a vitally important question, otherwise we won't make any progress. You see, if if this tribalism continues, then anything, the two parties really that are capable of forming government are the Labor Party and the LNP, the Liberal National Party. That's it. The Greens won't form a government. I'm sorry to break it to them, but they need 76 seats. They've got one, one, right? So if we're waiting for the Greens to form a government, then, you know, the planet will by that time have melted down completely. So I wouldn't be counting on that. And in these circumstances, what Bob did is, and he asked me to do this, he said, get from the conservation movement, because the Green Party didn't exist at that time, right? 
a list of uh, environmental achievements that, that they would like to see happen, which is not so big that we can never do it and we just always criticise for it and doesn't completely frighten the whole Australian public so that they vote Labor out. And that's what we did. And the leadership in those days understood that they were pragmatic and they're still around, some of them, and some of them have, um, we've lost. Uh, Philip Toyne has passed away. He was terrific at this. Rick Farley was the head of the National Farmers Federation and worked with Philip on land care. Mm. Um, Peter Garrett was tremendous. You know who else was really good? Bob Brown, who actually founded the Australian Greens. But I could work with Bob and would say, OK, no, we're not doing... World Heritage listing of all the Tasmanian forests. They've got to have World Heritage values and so on. And we went through a two-year very difficult process. But Bob gave credit where credit was due. In fact, I still remember he sent a card and a bottle of champagne and flowers to both Bob and me. Now, it's a little symbol, but it was not Bob Brown saying, oh, that's the least you could do, you know, like you don't really believe in the environment if you don't put all the Tasmanian forests into World Heritage areas. And, you know, that's how we made progress. These days, it's much tougher because, uh, in frankly, I think the Greens Party... It is a political party. So the Greens Party has a, an interest in basically saying Labor's no good and the Coalition's no good and we are good. And that's the political contest, you see. And I'd like a return to the days where you could actually sit down, come up with something that's achievable and set about achieving it rather than making speeches in the parliament. So we've, we've talked a lot here around the internal politics. So if we take a step uh, away from that and, and look to the voters mm. and, and to people, regardless of political affiliation, what can people who are listening today do to help fix these uh, issues of tribalism and, and, and political affiliation so they can put aside their... Um, voting of red, green or blue and actually help with climate action? Well, be pragmatic. You see, um, it's great to be pure and it's easy to be pure and you never have to do anything other than talk. Uh, And pragmatism, I think these days in the world of tribalism, is like just about the worst word you could ever imagine. Pragmatic, that means compromise. That means impure. Oh, no, we don't want to do that. And that's why we get the sort of results that we've been getting. Um, there's this absolutism, and, and you're right, like people look back now fondly on the Hawke years. He was pragmatic. Bob mm. Hawke, Paul Keating, Graham Richard, they were pragmatic. And the result of that was progress. And without pragmatism, you can't get progress because you cannot say to people, um, this goes back to a discussion we had earlier, we require you to lose your job in order to save the planet. Voters, uh, this is a part of our human tribalism, they think about their family first. Mm. First, I have an obligation to my family. I've got people telling me I've got to give up my job and become unemployed. I won't be able to pay for the kids' school shoes. I won't be able to, we won't be able to go on a holiday. You can't expect people then to say, yeah, I'll vote for that because other people want me to. Other people who may not be asked to make those sacrifices. It's completely understandable that people will not vote for climate change if they personally are asked to bear 
a big burden of that. And they think, well, corporations should be doing that. Government should be doing that. Why is it little old me and my family that has to save the planet? And then they vote against the progressive side of politics. Now, this might be a question for another day, but is there anything that we can do to support those who will bear the brunt and cost of it? Uh, Look, yes, because in the areas, let's say with or without policy, let me say this, with or without policy, we will be making the transition to a low-carbon future. No one's going to invest in new coal-fired power stations. All the companies realise that they've got to reduce their emissions because there's so much advocacy. So it's going to happen, right? It's then a question of how quickly that happens or whether there are setbacks. Now, there is a proposal for a new coal-fired power station in Queensland from the federal government. It hasn't said it will do it to, you know... Uh, be very fair. But if that went ahead, that would set back all the renewables. But so long as the government doesn't start putting more obstacles in the way of the transition to renewables, it's going to happen anyway. And if that happens in the very areas where there might be jobs that are at risk, they are also great sites for renewable energy. Great sites. In addition to that, the transmission system is in those same locations, right? So we've got all the big wires, you know, connecting Mm -hmm. from the power generators um, into the cities. It's all ready to go. Like, only we could stuff it up, right? (laughs) Like, only only governments could stuff it up. If governments sort of stepped back a bit and didn't every second day try to say, oh, we'll stick this in there and that in there and that in there, the community and the business, you know, the everyday community and the business community would get on with the transition. So my favourite quote at the moment is Bono quoting another famous activist. He says, Martin Luther King said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I don't believe that anymore. It doesn't bend towards justice. It has to be bent towards justice. You've been on this journey for 30 years now, over 30 years. Where do you think we are heading and what do you think the next milestone will be for us? Uh, Well, going back to Martin Luther King, he didn't just wait for the forces of gravity to bend the moral arc towards justice. He was active, very active. He lost his life through being so active. Um, And I've been active. I'm not a Martin Luther King. And, and, you know, we all should be active and we should, should advocate, but we should not be unsympathetic. We should not think that anyone who's worried about keeping their job is some sort of moron and, you know, a climate change vandal, um, we should empathise and understand that it might be easy for some of us to say, yeah, we want, you know, a better climate. Of course we do. But we don't want to bear the consequences of it. You know, we don't want to pay higher electricity prices. We want someone else to do it. You'll never get progress that way, you know, in terms of community attitudes. So I think going back to the Hawke consensus model, being respectful of people who are working in jobs that might be contributing to global emissions, uh, rather than effectively describing them as, you know, in Martin Luther King's day, you know, that they'd be racists, you know, like he was dealing with racism. And now there's this kind of rhetoric that these are really bad people and it's the wrong way to go. So while we've come a long way in 30 years, we still have a fair way to go. What gives you hope that we can get this right? 
Well, technology is really important because um, the commercial risks now associated with um, coal-fired power stations in general and the whole carbon-intensive, you know, activities on Earth, the commercial um, risks associated with them are rising all the time. Now, that, that as in, sorry, that is at least in part due to activism, right? So I think that's good. Um, so it, it's going to happen. The question is, we I think we are in a race against time, uh, and you know, climate change uh, scientists, uh, conferences that are going on, uh, are saying that we're all going to miss our Paris targets by a long way. And even if we hit them, um, we're going to fall well short of what's necessary to restrict um, global warming to two degrees. You know? So. The better, the faster, the better. But let's do it with some empathy and um, understand that people just can't be discarded, because once you start a program or advocacy of people being thrown on the scrap heap, they will get a lot of sympathy. Right? Mm. They will get a lot of sympathy from everyday Australians and everyday people around the world who say it's not fair that the most vulnerable people should bear the burden and the ad, the activists, the advocates, say, oh, well, you know, I don't really want to have to bear much burden. It's wide open for attack and for slowing down progress towards reducing emissions. So what I'm hearing there is that empathy is going to be one of the secret ingredients for success. Yeah, it, it is, and but it's got to be empathy in practice. Mm. Um, people go, oh, yeah, I do feel sorry for them, but they've got to do it anyway. Well, that doesn't get you very far. And you know, going back to our discussion about tribalism, it, it just seems to me that people, you know, someone speaks 15 words and then they're immediately put in a tribe, right, they're in favour of fossil fuels and so on, and then, you know, the hissing starts. This is really unproductive, in my view. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Craig. You have provided so much insight and interesting ideas. For those of you who, who do care about climate action, I hope you heard what you can take away to shift the dial and play your role in bending the moral arc of the universe towards justice. So thank you, Craig. Thanks for joining us and look forward to um, having you back one day in the future, maybe. Great. Thanks. I'm very happy to come back. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Craig. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Voice of Change. The views of everyone on this show are their own and not necessarily the representatives of the organisations they work for. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. And if you have any suggestions about the show, please feel free to reach out on my website, sophietaylorprice.com, or on Instagram or Twitter. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes. In the studio next week, we'll be talking about the bushfires in Sydney, the impact of climate change on Australia's wine industry and your favourite Shiraz, and the role of private philanthropy in conservation. Plenty on the agenda, so stay tuned. Until then, bye for now and see you on the flip side. <laughs>